Today we'll be reading Matthew 20. I'll be reading 1 through 16. If you could open your Bibles with me to Matthew 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And going out to the third hour, he saw the others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go out into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again at the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found the others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, go out into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled about at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal with us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with us for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose to what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, thanks for this morning. Thanks for um, all the safe travels you've provided so far. Um, The holiday weekend and a fun Michigan win. Um, Thanks for, yeah, getting to be a church family and um, having more than just physical family here right now. Um, I pray that today we'd hear your word through Andrew and what you want us to um, take away and learn throughout the week about our lives and about you. Um, Would we take your generosity and not see that something that we deserve, but something that's been um, filled with grace and mercy and we get to choose to see that in our lives. So would you help us to remember that throughout this week? We love you and pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Sophie. Hey, good morning, everybody, and go blue. There we go. We can clap for that. We love the Wolverines around here, you guys. Let me tell you, my headspace last night finishing this sermon was in a great spot after that win, so I was super excited, super eager to keep working. Uh, My name is Andrew. Uh, I work here for Treeline Church. It's my privilege to lead the college ministry called Salt Company. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Matthew 20. That's where we're going to be at. We've been teaching through the Gospel of Matthew this whole fall. And here's the question that this passage answers for us this morning. How do we know that it's worth it to follow Jesus? How do we know that it's actually worth it? You see, we've been looking at a lot of teachings with Jesus the last few weeks, and they are like pretty intense. In fact, if we actually follow some of the things that Jesus puts forth before us, it demands like all of our lives. This isn't just like a little subsection of beliefs that we have. Jesus is the real person. He was here in flesh and blood, asks us to give him everything. And last week, the man that he asked to do that was the rich young ruler. And Jesus put this command before, them, before him to sell all that you have and then come follow me. So give me everything. Follow me with all that you are. And this man went away sad because he walked away with his stuff, but he totally missed out on Jesus. And now when Jesus flips the same question back on you, what is your response? What do we do when Jesus says, hey, you go and sell everything, follow me with all that you are. 
See, Jesus flipped this question, not just for that man, but for his disciples and for us too. And here was Peter's response to Jesus's question. He says it right before it in chapter 19, verse 27. Then Peter said in reply to this, see Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? So the question that Peter asks is the question that we're probably all wondering, what do we get? Like what's in it for us? Okay, if I'm actually gonna do this whole Christianity thing, if I'm actually gonna go all in with Jesus and follow him with every part of my life, how do I know that that's going to be worth it and not a waste? How do I know that this is gonna be worth it for me in the end? And what does Jesus say to Peter? Look at verse 28 of chapter 19. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you in the new world, When the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or land for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Jesus's response here is amazing. Like the promise of the reward here goes way beyond what the disciples would have deserved, right? Like if you read the rest of the disciples' lives, like they're great, they do some amazing things, but Jesus is, and they're like, hey, what do I get in return for this? Jesus is like literal thrones in my kingdom. Like you are going to be ruling over tribes. You're gonna inherit a hundredfold of whatever you gave to me. Like this promise is intense, And so in answer to like Peter's question, hey, what do we get Jesus when we go all in with you? Jesus's answer is way more than you can imagine. Actually, the way I reward people who follow me is radically disproportionate to the things they actually give to me. I reward you better than you can imagine. But then he says this, look at verse 30. He says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus says, hey, those people who follow me, those people who like live radical, who give me anything, they will be rewarded, but be very careful because there will be many people who think they deserve a reward like that, but in the end won't get anything at all. In fact, he says that many people who appear like they are out earning and outworking the competition will find in the end that they are in fact in last place, the first will be last and the last will be first. And so Peter's question, it was a fair question. Jesus, what do we get when we follow you? What is it actually like in the kingdom of God? And Jesus's answer shows Peter, not just what we're supposed to do to earn this thing, but what it's like to even get in the kingdom of God in the first place. And this is a really big deal, so big that Jesus sort of pulls over this whole conversation and tells this entire story, this parable of the vineyard workers to explain it. All right, so let's look at this parable. Let's break it down to see what Jesus was talking about. Look at verse one with me. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Let's stop there. We should pay really close attention to the master of the house because the master is meant to represent God. And this story is way more about the vineyard owner than about the vineyard workers. And so we should look to him. And what does Jesus want us to see about the master 
of the house? What does he want us to see about what God is like? Here's what he wants us to hone in on. Before we find God, he is out looking for us. Before we find God, he is out looking for us. I don't know what you think about when you think about God. And I don't know what you picture when you picture yourself on your own spiritual journey. Many of you maybe came here this morning looking for something. Many of you maybe came here to learn more about God or maybe to get a little bit closer to him, but make no mistake, there is someone else here looking for you. And it is God. One of the biggest things that I really, really want people to understand who are just beginning to take their first steps with God is that not, God is not some out there God. He's not some distant person that you need to go and find. He is the person that when you stop and slow down, you realize he's been chasing you the whole time. You may have come here looking for God, but our God is the type of God that goes into the market, rises before you do, and pursues you. Our God isn't interested in making you earn your way towards him. He goes to you first. This detail we learn about the master, it wasn't just describing what he was doing. It was meant to describe what he is like. God goes out early to chase us down. Verse number two. After he had a conversation, it said, after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, which is an incredibly fair wage for an entire day's work, he sent them into his vineyard. Okay, these first guys that he interacts with, these are the real go-getters. So maybe they just grew up in a household with hardworking parents who like showed them how it was done, like go early into the marketplace. Like that's where all the good jobs are at. Maybe these guys are just like go-getters. Maybe they're Enneagram threes or something. They're just like, I'm gonna do it. More than likely, these are the ones that initiated the contract. Okay, the fact that they were even in the marketplace in the first place showed that they didn't have jobs. They didn't have stable income. They weren't wanted. They had no stability in their lives. The fact is they needed this job. They needed to be hired that day or their family wasn't going to eat. And so they probably came up, can you give me a denarius? That's what I need. They were the ones initiating the contract, seeking out work. And whatever the case was, they agreed to work, and it would have been a huge relief, a guaranteed another day of payment, another day of bread for my family. The master, though, he's not done yet. He's not satisfied just with that first round. So look at verse three. It says, and going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. And then going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. So now, at this point in the story, it would have really started to not make sense to the people listening to it. Because now the owner of the vineyard starts to do things that other owners wouldn't do, and he begins to hire people that other employers wouldn't want to hire. And here's what's interesting. There is nothing in here mentioned about the need in the vineyard Nothing would indicate that the manager is lacking something, that he's short on help, that he doesn't have what he needs. And maybe most importantly, there's nothing about these workers that would suggest that these are the people worth hiring. They're standing idle in the marketplace. So far, these guys have done nothing to earn. They're not like shooting out resumes and cover letters. They're standing idle, passively waiting. They're not doing anything. 
the only thing that is clear at this point in the story is that the master has a desire to empty the market and fill his field. The only thing that is clear is that something in the master wants to bring people from out there really close to him into his house. And maybe some of you feel like that right now. Some of you feel just idle. Some of you don't know what the purpose of your life is. Some of you feel like you've been spinning your wheels or been chasing dreams that have gone nowhere. Maybe you feel overlooked or maybe you feel like you're in last place. Maybe you feel like if Jesus was trying to draft an A-team, you would definitely not make the roster. I'm telling you, you are the type of people this master is looking for. Jesus is in the business of going after people no one else wants. With Jesus is the one filling his field, there's always room for one more. He loves to take chances and he loves to take people that no one else would. You have a place here. I promise that there is nothing in your life, even idleness, even purposelessness, even lack of understanding of who you are or what you wanna do that would make Jesus want to hold you at arm's length. It's just not what he's like. And it can't be more clear than it is in verse six. Let's keep going. It said about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. And so he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. Okay, now it's the 11th hour. The traditional workday back then was 12 hours, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So it's like 5 p.m. These guys really are not worth hiring at this point. I mean, by the time that he goes out and convinces them and agrees with the contract, they got to get there. They got to learn what they're supposed to do. There's going to be no time left to work. And anything, like if these guys have been passed over all day long, if someone needs more help, these guys didn't get chosen. Someone has one really dirty job left at the end of the day. These guys, still not there. They were lower than the lowest and unable to even contribute anything of real value to the master at this point in the day. And yet he says, come into thy field. How does it end? Verse eight. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last and up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. And now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also only received a denarius. Now, this story has really gone a different direction than we would have anticipated it to. So he agreed on one denarius with the first workers, right? They had a contract. They had an agreement. We're going to pay you one denarius. The next level of workers, he doesn't say anything about payment except that I will pay you what is fair. And the last workers, no payment is mentioned at all. He's just like, you want to come? And they're like, sure, I'm doing nothing else. So he's got a contract with some, a promise of faithfulness to others, and no promise whatsoever, just an invitation to the last people. And then one by one, beginning with the workers who were hired last, he begins to pay them. And then one by one, regardless of when they got there or how much work they had done, they all began to receive one denarius. 
And it's not that hard to imagine what's going on in the back of the line, right? I mean, as the guys who got there first are kind of like in line, ready to get paid, and they see like the first person who is only there for an hour get a denarius, like, can you imagine like the excitement? Like, dude, 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 he got a denarius. He was here for an hour. Like, we've been here all day. Like, we're gonna get loaded. Like kind of excitement, look at that. And then all of a sudden the guys who were there for three hours also got one and six hours just got one. And like, wait a second, no one's getting more. No one's getting more. And all of a sudden the excitement turns a little bit to disappointment. Be like, surely he's not gonna pay us the same thing he paid those losers who were only here for an hour, right? And they get to the front of the line, expecting way more and into their hands comes the exact same payment of the workers who were there for an hour, a single denarius. And now everyone is paid, but the shocking thing is everyone is paid the same. Jesus meant for this part of the story to stop us in our tracks. Jesus wanted this tension in this story to catch us off guard because the part of us right now that is deeply confused or maybe deeply offended by this type of behavior is the part of us that Jesus is trying to address. And the workers were in the very same spot. Look at verse 11. It said, on receiving it, they grumbled to the master of the house saying, these last few only worked one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and of the scorching heat. They felt what we are feeling, okay? They felt robbed, cheated. Like, how is it fair that somebody who only worked one hour got the same wage of all of us who worked all day? Where's the justice in that? Like, how can someone who's been standing around idle all day long, the people, they weren't even accepting handouts, the people who weren't even trying to get it done for themselves, the people who weren't even like working hard on their own, why do they get to be paid the same as us? We worked all day long in the hot, in the scorching sun. And you guys, this is tough work, okay? These guys aren't accountants, all right, Cole, I love you, but you work at your computer in your basement all day, all right? Like, you know, and again, you're doing things that I could never do, not that smart, but this work, categorically different than that, okay? All day long, hot, upper 90s, like dry heat, sweating, manual labor. This is like Veritas Homes construction, okay? This is deep labor. These guys would have been exhausted, leaving their blood, sweat, and tears out there. And so we sympathize with these guys. When they come to the owner and said, there's something that like, hey, this feels wrong. There's something deep inside of us that feels that way too. Even though the master had not broken his contract, right? I mean, technically there was nothing unfair that happened here. The master honored his agreement. And yet there's something deep, deep inside of us that feels like this is wrong that feels like this shouldn't be the way that it is. And this story is meant to make us feel that way. 
because these questions and these feelings are the very thing that Jesus is trying to flesh out of us because the entire point of this story is to show us that we have some deep-seated beliefs about the way the world should work that are categorically different from what the kingdom of God is like. Jesus wants to bring out some angers and frustrations inside of us to show us that there are some things in us that we genuinely believe to the core of who we are that are actually different than the way his kingdom works. And he brings them out of us in this story so that he can get rid of them and we can see him and his kingdom much more clearly. One Bible scholar says this, Jesus deliberately and cleverly led the listeners along by degrees until they understood that if God's generosity was to be represented by a man, such a man would be different from any man ever encountered. You see, when Jesus is trying to tell a story about what the generosity of God is like, When Jesus is trying to tell a story of what it's like to operate under the principles of grace, he has to make one up because there is no natural example of it in our world. He literally needs to make up a new type of story with a new narrative, one that we never would have come up with by ourselves. He has to tell a story. And this behavior of this manager, it is so, so foreign to us because from the time we were very, very little, each and every one of us has been trained to believe that payment, reward, and blessing not only are, but must be directly correlated to what we do. Deep in the fabric of our society, deep inside of the beliefs in our bones, we believe that reward, that payment, that blessing, what we deserve not only is, but should be tied to what we do. We want some objective standard. Like we literally do not know how to operate outside of a framework that values ourselves and other people based on what we can accomplish. That's how we relate to one another. That's what we put on our resumes. That's how we size one another up. And another commentator says this, he says, we cannot, for whatever reason, detach ourselves from the ruling convention that rewards should be commensurate to the services rendered. And when one man is rewarded far in excess of what has been earned, we detect unfair discrimination. When we look out into the world and we see people getting blessing, and grace and handouts and things above what we think we, they deserve, we get offended. Something in us believes that is wrong. And it seems like that is exactly what is happening in this story. It seems that people who don't deserve something are getting rewarded above and beyond what they should actually be given. It seems here that there is some sort of level of unfairness and injustice going on. And so they bring it to the vineyard owner's attention. And what does he say? Verse 13, he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? 
here's the difference between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. The most defining feature of the kingdom of God isn't how hard people work, but how generous the king is. What makes someone great in the kingdom of God isn't how hard we work and it's not what we've done to earn it. It's the generosity of the king to let us in in the first place. Here's what Jesus is trying to do. And this is a really big chain. It's a really big cord for some of us, but Jesus is trying to sever the connection between what you do and what grace you receive from God. Jesus is telling us this story to break the connection in your mind, in your heart between what you do and the grace you get from God. He is saying there is no correlation because what's actually true in the kingdom of God is that every blessing and every reward is only because of grace and not because of merit. He is trying to take our merit, our achieving, our working and striving out of the equation completely. And notice the vineyard owner's tone towards the workers right now. This is not a strong rebuke or harsh correction. He says, friend, I've done you no wrong. He's gentle. He's throwing an arm around somebody that is really, really frustrated about something that simply doesn't matter to the vineyard owner. He said, I have done you no wrong. This is a gentle reminder that the relationship they have with him isn't meant to be one of employment, but one of friendship. This reveals the master's heart towards the people working in the vineyard, that it's way less about the work and way more about the relationship that you get to have with the vineyard owner. This owner cares more about the relationship than he does the work that is being done. And this should be super obvious from the story, right? I mean, on paper, this guy is a terrible business owner. Like on paper, he is making categorically like stupid financial decisions and hiring practices. Like if he was actually in business in our day and age, he would not be in business for very long and labor unions would come after him hard, okay? This guy wouldn't make it. Like seriously, when we look at it, this uh, vineyard owner, he almost seems foolish, right? Like didn't, wasn't he aware of how much labor he needed to go out and hire in the morning? Shouldn't he have done all of his labor hiring and calculations before he got to the market? Why did he have to keep going back for more and more? And shouldn't he have known how much money he had to pay people? Like, it seems like he didn't do any calculations at all. It seems like he was actually unable to competently run his business and go out and get what he needed and then give people what they deserved. But, what if all of that indicates not that he couldn't calculate what he needed and what people deserved, but that he didn't want to? What if the way that the guy runs his business isn't evidence that he doesn't want to calculate those, doesn't, can't calculate those things, but that he doesn't want to? What if he's operating by completely different principles? Principles not of merit and performance and earning, but of generosity and grace and lavishness. What if that's the message? What if God is trying to show us that he is not interested in your work or your wages, but giving you way more than you deserve, unattached to what you've earned? 
Guys, I'm telling you, that is the point of this story. Sit in that just with me for a minute. What if that's actually true? What if the God of the universe in the best of ways is not actually interested in what you have to do for him? What if his greatest desire is just to get you in the vineyard so he can be generous towards you? What if the whole point is just to show us how uncalculated God is with his grace? What if the whole point of this story is to show us how extravagant, how almost reckless it is that a business manager would pay these people like that? The thing we're meant to walk away from this isn't a formula for how much grace we will get, but radical trust that the one who is in charge of the grace is more generous than we could ever imagine. This parable is not meant to teach us how we can extract the most possible grace from God. This parable is meant to show us the heart of the one who holds all grace in his hands is more generous than we could ever imagine. Have you ever pictured God as waiting to dump blessing on your life? Have you ever pictured God in a way that totally unattached from what you do from him is a father waiting to dump lavish grace on you? I'm telling you, that is what he's like. And that's what it means to become a Christian. Look at Romans chapter four, verse four. It says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That verse right there is the heart of the message of Christianity. You see, if what it takes to become a Christian is to work really, really hard to be good enough or perfect enough to prove yourself to God, then he owes you your salvation. If what you do is work really hard in the vineyard and he like owes you that, then we, he is in debt to us. I'm telling you, that is not how it works. See, we do not work and yet we put our faith in the one who justifies us regardless of those things. And it is our faith that counts us as righteousness. That's what it's like to be in the kingdom of God. And it was that type of grace, this type of like, I know I don't deserve to be here, but I'm just happy I got in. This like, hey, I don't deserve any of this. I'm just lucky to be at the vineyard. It's that type of grace that the early workers weren't able to see and in fact hated the thought of. And if we're being honest, I find myself here so often I saw myself in these early workers. And there is a reason that Jesus is trying to remove this sort of earning mentality, I can get it done on my own, is because what it does is it robs them of joy and it makes his kingdom one of competition, not celebration. And that's not what his kingdom is like. Look at what they said when they brought this to him. They grumbled at the master of their house saying these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Right there in their complaint against the master, they made two fatal flaws. Two flaws that I find in my own heart as well. The first is this, they were trying to put the vineyard owner in their debt and he wouldn't let them do it. 
they were trying to put the vineyard owner in their debt and he wouldn't let them do it. Look at what they said. They're like, we worked in the scorching heat. We worked all day long. We bore the burdens of the day. They were doing everything in their power to try to show that their manager owed them, that he was in their debt. But you cannot put God in your debt. You cannot put God in your debt. It's not possible to do. I cannot work so hard for Salt Company that he owes it to me that everything in that sphere goes really well. And man, have I tried. He does not owe that to me. I cannot try hard enough to please other people so that he owes me other people's respect and affirmation. I wish I could, but that's not grace that's earning. And that's not how it works in the kingdom of God. You can't be so content in singleness that God owes you a spouse. You can't be so wise with your money that he owes you a steady market. And you can't be so diligent of a parent that he owes you the obedience of your children. You cannot make God owe you anything because he doesn't. But here's the thing. The reason he withholds those things isn't because he doesn't want to give you them. And it's not because he's a stingy master, he's a not. No, the reason he doesn't always say yes to those things is because he wants to wean you off of the belief that it's your work that earns it from him. He wants to teach you to the core of who you are that my blessing is unattached to your effort for me. I wanna give it to you anyway. I just want you to trust my generosity and not your hard work instead. That's what he's trying to do with us. You guys, our God is way bigger than the little blessings we demand from him. Our God is trying to give you so much more than the one thing you say he has to give you to be happy. The guys who came early in the morning, they're like, I want my denarius. And he's like, fine, you can have it. I was gonna give you way more. If you enter into a contractual agreement with God, if your happiness with him and joy in him is contingent on, giving, on him giving you the one specific thing that you think will make you happy, you are going to miss out on a whole host of blessings that he wants to give you in his life. Because this whole passage is contingent on the generosity of our God, not the stinginess of our master. How do we know he's like that? How do we know that when we put our trust in him, that when we actually operate, believing he doesn't owing anything from us, not trying to wrestle it out of his hands, how do we know that God's actually going to come through for us? Look at Romans chapter eight, verse eight. Sorry, Romans eight, verse 31. It says this, it says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Here's the thing. The most valuable thing that God could have given us, the thing that would have been hardest for him to give up, the last thing that he would have ever wanted to give us was his son. And yet he didn't even withhold Jesus from us. Here's what that means. It is actually impossible that God would be withholding good from you because he already gave you the greatest good that he has, his son. 
It is actually impossible for God to hold things back from you because he already gave you all that he has to give. He gave you his son, Jesus. I'm telling you, he doesn't owe you something, not because he's stingy or mean, but because he has nothing left to give. He gave the greatest thing to pay your debt to him. And now we are in there because of mercy and grace. That's what it means to trust in Jesus. And this is a really, really hard thing for us to believe because so many of us have worked so hard to get where we're at in life. So many of us deeply ingrained in who we are is that the things that I have done have earned me the things that I have. And Jesus is like, that's not how it works around here. I hold all the grace. I hold all the gifts and all the blessings. But the really good news is, is I am willing to pour them out because I'm willing to give you my son to trust in him and what he earns you. That's the message of the gospel. And that's what it's like to be in the kingdom of God. Will you pray with me?